If you don't mind, let's turn together in our Bibles to the first chapter of First John. <clears throat> we began walking through John's first letter last week. Rick both introduced the letter to us, and then we covered the first four verses of the first chapter, and so we will continue today, as is our custom in the next verse, in verse 5, and we will continue down through verse 10. We've entitled today's sermon, Living in the Light, and this has really more than one meaning to it. I'm going to read the verses for us, explain to you very briefly a little bit what I mean by this title, and we will take our time looking through the verses and what they mean and what they mean for us as a church. Hear with me the word of the Lord. This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, We make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. And may God bless to us the reading of His Word. What I mean by living in the light is sort of twofold. On the one hand, we live before God. There is a Latin phrase that the church has used now for centuries, It means before the face of God, but the Latin phrase is corum deo, we live before the face of God. And if we have come to the Father through the Son, we live in fellowship with He who is light, we live in the light. Furthermore, secondarily, because The Word of God, the written Word of God, is likened to light. It is revelation from God. We live in light of what He has said, and then that has relational dimensions. We together live in the light. So when we approach the Word of God, we do so in a sense as individuals, as individual worshipers. But there is another sense to which we do this in in plural. We do this together. And so we, the corporate people of God, we, the family of God, the household of faith, we come together today as those who live before the face of God under the authority of the Word of God as His people. Pastor Rick identified for us the three main themes of John's epistle last week. The main theme, the first of those three, but the main theme is that Jesus Christ is the God-man. He is fully God and 
fully man. And this is necessary for our salvation. For the infinite God of the universe has come down to redeem us from sin's curse. But this demanded that He live a perfect life as a real man. The second Adam, keeping covenant with God, taking our punishment as the substitute for our sins, and rescuing us, pardoning us, that we might be reconciled to God. There were false teachers that had arisen in the environs where these churches were. John probably wrote to a number of churches, perhaps in and around the city of Ephesus in around A.D. 90. So this is around 60 years after Jesus had been resurrected and ascended back to heaven. Because of the nature of humanity, the pure Gospel of Jesus Christ, even six decades after Jesus had been resurrected and had ascended back to heaven, even six decades later, when some of the apostles, at least John, were still alive, the Gospel had become adulterated. And for the past 20 centuries, we are under constant threat of that same thing happening. And so John, the beloved disciple, writes this letter to a number of churches to encourage them about what the real Gospel is. That Jesus of Nazareth is both God and man, and He came in human flesh to rescue us from sin. But there are two sub-themes, the second and third themes, sub-themes that arise out of that main first theme. So if we need to return to the person and work of Christ to understand the good news, that real pardon from sin comes through Jesus Christ, who really took on flesh and died for us, then two ideas arise out of that. The first is that we should follow God's commands. We should obey Him. And the third theme, the second sub-theme, is that we should love one another. So it's likely that false teachers had come out of those churches, perhaps started their own fellowships, and in some ways were still infiltrating these pure churches by teaching a false gospel. And then sort of naturally, what arose out of that is that it didn't matter anymore whether they obeyed God because they became their own gods and they got to set their own rules. And the second consequence is that not only did they stop obeying God and His revealed Word, they stopped caring about each other. And if you think that this is something that just happened about 2,000 years ago, let me disabuse you of that thought that still continues today. The pure Gospel of Jesus Christ is still under threat. And then consequently... People seem to not care that much about what God has revealed about how we worship Him and about how we care for each other. Because if we are our own gods, we get to set our own rules, and I'm more important than you, therefore it doesn't matter how I treat you. The reason that we chose this letter at this time in the history of our two churches is that we are considering and intending to become one. And when it really comes down to it, what is it that should unite us? You all are nice people here at Berlin. 
I hope that you are finding that our folks are pretty nice too. But what unites us is not that we are nice. What unites us is not that we care about the same morality. What unites us fundamentally is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. And then, if that is true, it matters very much how we worship. Not just when we come together and sing certain songs and pray certain prayers and read catechisms and listen to a sermon, but all week long. According to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, whatever we eat or drink, the normal substance stuff of life, the stuff we can't do without, the everyday stuff, even that, and everything else we do should be done to the glory of God. So, in a sense, everything is worship. We're united by the gospel, and it matters how we worship God, and it matters deeply how we care about each other. So far, we, as two churches coming together, surprisingly are getting along pretty well. And the reason I say it like that is because we come from from two different sort of cultures. Convictionally, we believe the same gospel, but, but Berlin and North Point have done things differently for a while. We've sung different songs. We've clapped our hands or not clapped our hands. We've raised our hands or not raised our hands. We've waved banners or not waved banners. And you might think that two congregations that come together in that way might fight. And so far, for the most part, we haven't. But we might in the future. What is going to keep us from that? Or perhaps even more likely, how will we navigate those choppy waters when they inevitably come? When I say something, or, or do something, or Rick says something, or does something, or our two different elder teams, or our two different congregations do things that, that aren't the same way that you've done things, that can be annoying. How will we view such things? How will we handle such things? How will we love each other when it's actually kind of hard? We've likened this whole process to, to marriage. We dated for a while. Like we went to McDonald's maybe at the beginning. Because you don't want to spend too much money on people you're not sure you're going to like. And then along the way, maybe we went to Hyde Park because we realized that we liked each other and you were worth an expensive steak. And then we decided that that went pretty well and we got engaged. And we're kind of in that engagement phase right now. We're waiting to the consummation. We're waiting to the marriage. And we hope to throw a big party. By the way, we've talked about that a little bit. God willing, we'll work all this out. We'll have a great big party like a reception. Okay? That's the intention. But the hope is that, that the marriage will continue beyond that. It was so nice of Aaron Birchwell to put these roses behind me in the rocks today, honoring our 20th anniversary. I had no idea that was happening. I didn't do it. If I had done it, it would not look this nice, I assure you. Um, I bought some roses for my wife. They're sitting in a vase at home. That's about the best I can do. There's like no baby's breath or no greenery. It's just some orange roses. Uh, but for the past 20 years that we've been married, uh, we've had to work hard. 
Somebody was saying to me the other day that we are right now, these two churches coming together, in a bit of a honeymoon phase. I joked with him that my wife and I actually had a fight on our honeymoon. So we learned right away that it wasn't always going to be so easy. She was really mean to me, and I like took off down the beach for like an hour. That's not true. It was the opposite. <laughs> I was really mean. I had to learn like third day of marriage how to apologize and how to reconcile. Um, and then despite me, the last day of our honeymoon, she cut all of her hair off. And I'm not even kidding. There was a salon at the hotel in Cancun, and she said, I want a haircut. And I thought she was just kidding, and she chopped all of her hair off. I'm not sure if it was a result of our fight or not, but I realized very early on that things change quickly, and I have to learn to adapt. <laughs> and that's what it's going to be like for us, folks. We are going to have to learn to adapt and forbear and show honor and forgive and if we don't embrace the pure gospel of Jesus, we can't do that. Because I'll always be concerned about my own rights. But if I understand the gospel that, that Christ has come to me with great mercy to rescue me and make me His own and delights in forgiving me, and that's what we'll talk about today, then I will delight in forgiving you and forbearing you. And then this, this merger becomes more than just a potentiality, but a beautiful testimony to all of us and to this community of what God can do. And so that's why we picked First John. John was uniquely designed by God and discipled by the Lord Jesus to write this letter. He was the beloved disciple, the one who leaned on the breast of Jesus. He couldn't help but be close to the Lord Jesus. He, he adored Him. He was a feeler. Not all of you are like that. We have some heady people out here. A few of you are, are real feelers. You feel everything. Churches need both. I have my, uh, one oldest son who, who is the head guy. Um, he's, he's really heady. He, he thinks all the time. He's always analyzing everything and sharing all of his opinions with us. I, I love that about him most of the time. Um... <laughs> Uh, and, and, and yet at the same time, he, he loves to sit next to me on the couch and, and we just watch movies together. You might think that's horrible that a pastor would actually watch movies. I'm sorry. Uh, that's kind of one of our love language things. He just puts his head on my shoulder, my, my brainy one. My, my second biological son does that same thing. He, he loves to be really near me, but you know, he's great in school. So it's possible to be, to be both, to be, to be head and heart. John was like that. Full of head, theologically deep but also a feeler. And so he's able to write to us about really good doctrine, but also to connect that to the way that we feel and worship. John is perfectly positioned to speak to us, and he does today. So, in many ways, this passage is about fellowship. John began last week as Rick spoke to us, and speaking about fellowship, you see this in verse 3. John wrote for the purpose a fellowship. He didn't want false teaching to infiltrate these churches and, and drive them apart. He, he wanted them to have pure fellowship with each other, but not just with each other horizontally, but also vertically with God. You see in the end of verse 3, not just that he wanted them to have fellowship with each other, but with the Father and with the Son. 
And so these verses for today, verses 5-10, through 10, are also about fellowship. So fellowship with God requires, first of all, according to verses 5-10, through 10, and specifically in verse 5, knowing and esteeming Him rightly. John says in verse 5, this is the message we have heard from Him. And John could speak with authority because he walked with Jesus closely. He was in the inner circle of the inner circle. He knew the message of Jesus. And for six decades, he had been reflecting on it. So, old man John writes this letter and says to his beloved disciples, we heard this message from Him and proclaimed it to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. So fellowship with God means that we must know and esteem Him rightly. Who He has revealed Himself to be. It has been said that in the beginning, God created man in His own image. And ever since, man has been returning the favor. Humanity seeks to fashion God after its own image. Why? Because we esteem ourselves highly. And we are born as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve with this disease that drives us to self-deification. To be in charge, to worship ourselves, to set our own standards. Turn with me, if you don't mind, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to his disciple Timothy. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in His testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, and notice verse 16, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Who is God? He is the great Creator of all things. Transcendent above all. Perfect in all of His attributes. He is sovereign. He is the exclusive Lord. He is immortal. He has unbounded power. Limitless wisdom. And deep, deep grace. And He dwells in unapproachable light. When John speaks of light and darkness here in 1 John chapter 1, he in some ways probably means that God does dwell in light. 
I remember one of my children said to me one time when we were speaking of the glory of God, that God must be shiny. God is a spirit. I'm not sure exactly how to explain all of that. We will, we will know we are in His presence when we are with Him in eternity. But this also has a dimension of, of morality to it. Lightness and darkness. We, we can sense that. The Scriptures speak often of this, this morality of light and darkness. And so, so God is light. He is pure, pure goodness. He is purely holy. And He is full of glory. But not just the Father. The Son as well. Who is co-equal with God. We see this in John chapter 1. The Apostle says to us there, in the beginning was the Word, this is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, and Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So there's literal light here, and there's metaphorical light. The light of morality here in John chapter 1, verses 1-5. through It's interesting as you go back to creation, we have talked about this before. If you go back to creation, God said, let there be light when He made all things. And there was light, but then He made the stars later. That's interesting. That means that there was actually something lighting up creation before there were any stars, including our sun, in the heavens. And then just to make that pretty plain, in the end, in Revelation chapter 21, there will be no night in the eternal state whenever the new Jerusalem comes down to the new earth. Because, John says, the Lamb will be there and He will be its lamp. That is fascinating. Out of God Himself, and specifically, the second person of the Trinity, light comes, and it will light up all of humanity. But there's also a moral dimension to this. This is what verse 5 in John chapter 1 is proclaiming to us. That because of sin and brokenness, darkness has pervaded this earth. But the Word, the Son of God, has come into the darkness, piercing it, And the darkness will not have the final word. This is why Jesus can say in John chapter 8, verse 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And so when John says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all, he is proclaiming to us the moral perfections of God and his power over all of life. And we who have come back into fellowship with Him, as John said in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, we live in relationship to the One who gives light to all humanity and breaks His light into the darkness to overcome sin. That's who our God is. We don't get to refashion Him after our own image. We don't get to make up the rules. We don't get to redefine morality. We live before Him as His subjects. And I will say to you that as we learn to do that, we will be the happiest. This this idea, this truth that God is light, 
is not meant to cow us, to, to frighten us into subjection. Now, now certainly we should fear God with reverential awe, but also live before Him expectantly with hope because His light is good and He shines it on us to show us His love. When I was a child, my grandparents had a farm in Kentucky. They have both gone to heaven now, but they would take us not only to hang out on their farm and do fun things on the farm, like go around their tobacco field and pick off tobacco worms. If you've never done that as a child, you have never lived. So whenever you have a tobacco field, there are these really thick worms that eventually end up about as thick as your thumb and about as long as one of your longer fingers. And we would go along through the leaves of tobacco and, and we would kill these worms. My grandpa actually had a beagle that would go in and among the rows of the tobacco and it would pull them off with its teeth really gently and it would shake its head really hard and it would kill the worms. It was really fascinating. Um, and by the way, if you think that growing tobacco is really wrong, my grandpa's with Jesus, everything's fine, okay? But not only would we hang out on my grandpa's tobacco farm, we would do fun things in Kentucky, like go to Lincoln's birthplace and the Kentucky State Fair, and we went to Mammoth Cave one time, which was a few hours from where they lived. And I will never forget going down into Mammoth Cave, which is the longest cave system in the world, twice as long as any other cave system that we know about. And you go way down deep into Mammoth Cave, and then to show you just how deep in the cave you are, they turn out all the lights. Has anybody ever gone to Mammoth Cave and done that? A few of you. It's really freaky. Like, I'm not scared of the dark. I like scary movies and all that kind of stuff. But it's like it, it's like it gets inside of you. And they turn back the lights, which they do this like 16 times a day, but they get joy out of it every time they frighten people. But I'll never forget that moment. I was a young child. But it, it sort of settled into you. And that's how the world can feel. We see that all around us right now. In our small group on Wednesday, we were intending to go through the first few verses of Philippians chapter 2, but as we were sharing before we got into Paul's letter to the church in Philippians, it was clear that we just needed to, to commune together in the truth that the darkness is real, but that the light is greater. That the darkness will not have the final word, but God, who is light, will. So we spent time there. So we've experienced death recently among those we love, and we've experienced sickness and disease among those we love, and people turning to sin rather than Jesus and giving in to the darkness. It can, it can feel heavy. It can feel like it's getting in you, like it's, like it's settling over you like a cloud, like, a, like an oppressive force. But that's why Jesus came, my friends. He came to teach us that He Himself is light and that He will overcome the darkness. So fellowship with God requires knowing and esteeming God rightly as the God of glory and as the God who shines His light into the darkness to overcome it and conquer it. Fellowship with God requires not only this, but secondly, obeying His commands and reflecting His character. So we know Him for who He is, who He has revealed Himself to be. We spend our lives studying about Him and worshiping Him, but then obeying Him as an act of worship and reflecting His character. This is what you do with light. We are to be like mirrors 
that reflect His light back to each other and to the world around us. John says in verse 6 in 1 John chapter 1, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. This is the ongoing process of, of growth, what we call in theological circles sanctification, becoming more and more holy over time. So here's the idea. God has made us His own through His Son, granted us faith that we might be born again. And through faith and repentance, the two sides of conversion, we return to our Creator. But the initial act of conversion, faith and repentance, is is really an ongoing process. Now, I'm justified once for all. I'm acquitted from my sin. I'm pardoned. The gavel has fallen for me, and the righteousness of Jesus has been credited to me. I don't have to fear condemnation anymore. And yet, in a sense, the faith and repentance that led me back to God are things that I practice every day. I must practice faith and repentance Faith in Jesus who has come as light into the darkness and repentance, turning away from sin and turning to God. This was part of the promise of the Old Covenant. That God would not just have an external law that would condemn us, but He would actually take away our hearts of stone and replace them with hearts of flesh and etch His law, like like tattooing it almost, on those hearts of flesh that they might beat for Him and want to be able to worship Him and then to be enabled to worship Him. And then not only that, He will place His Spirit inside those hearts that we can have fellowship with Him. So passages like Jeremiah 31 and Ezekiel 11 and Ezekiel chapters 36 through 37 proclaim these glorious expectations. But then Jesus came as light into the darkness and fulfilled all these promises. And now those who have turned to Jesus in faith and repentance have had their old nature removed, a new nature infused, and we walk in communion with God Himself. That's why He gave us the Holy Spirit. The Father and the Son covenanted together that they would rescue some of fallen humanity. The Son came, atoned for our sins, and promised the Comforter who has now taken up residence in those who have trusted Jesus. So God the Trinity from beginning to end is the one who takes care of our salvation. But as a response to that, though we don't save ourselves, as a response to what God has done, is doing, and will do, we yield by obeying His commands and we delight in reflecting His, His character. Now, you will never be perfect at this until Jesus returns, right? I dare say that most of us have sinned today. I might go further in saying that you have sinned since you have been sitting here listening to me. I'm sure somehow I've sinned since I've been preaching. I don't know. how. But we're talking about trajectory here. Direction. We will talk later about this in John's epistle. John makes a big deal about trajectory. 
Not perfection, because we will never be perfect this side of the restoration. But, but trajectory, lifestyle. This is what John is calling us to. I won't take time to turn here today, or we won't take time to turn here and, and really study this in detail, but, but I want to commend to you Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4 is a great chapter where Solomon, or someone who uh, edited perhaps after Solomon, compiled a lot of great Proverbs that point us back to the Word of God as a lamp for our feet as we walk with God. He he distinguishes between the evil and the wicked. The evil turn to their own ways, but the righteous turn to God. So, a contrast between the evil, wicked people and the righteous people. God's covenant people. It's an interesting contrast that Solomon draws out in verses 17 through 19 of Proverbs chapter 4. The wicked, according to verse 17, eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. That characterizes them. What about the righteous? What's the contrast? Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. The contrast shows up again in verse 19. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. You are familiar with Psalm 119.105, where the psalmist says, Your word is a lamp to my feet, and a light to my path. Why do I bring up Proverbs 4 and Psalm 119? Because if we're going to live in the light, obey God's commands and reflect His light, we have to actually know what He wants us to do, how He wants us to live. How do we learn about this? We learn about this from the Scriptures. Do we worship this book? No, we don't worship this book. But pouring over this book leads us to worship the God who gave it to us. According to 1 John chapter 1, we are to practice the truth. We practice the truth by knowing the truth. We live in light of God's revelation as we learn it and know it. And then we display God's character to the world around us as we obey Him. So, God is glorious, and we are called to glorify Him. He is the source of all good things. He is light, and we reflect that light in glorifying Him to the world around us. Jesus says to His disciples, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. So your salt and your light. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is what it means to glorify God. We reflect the light of His goodness to the world around us. As my children get older, I, I release them to more things. I give them more tether. Now, I can yank it back because I'm their dad, but I give them more tether. They get to hang out with friends a bit more and go certain places that they couldn't go when they were younger. But I invariably say to them when they do that, remember who you belong to. You belong to God. You belong to me. We are God's people. 
He is the only one who can satisfy us. Nothing else can. So when you go out into the world, remember your source of delight. And then remember, you have an opportunity with people all around you to display this source of delight and treasure. I commend to you some further thinking. Joshua chapter 7 is the story of Achan. You perhaps remember after the Israelites had conquered and sacked Jericho that God had said they couldn't keep anything as individuals. Most of it they destroyed. A little bit of it they kept in the treasury. But the individuals were not to keep anything. And if they did, they would be punished. In chapter 7, they go to conquer a little village called Ai, which compared to Jericho, which had seemed impregnable, should have been an easy feat. In fact, they wouldn't even send up their whole army. They just sent up a few people. And they were roundly defeated, run off the battlefield. Then it's revealed to Joshua that a man named Achan had taken some of the spoil from Jericho and kept it, not keeping God's commands. Achan is found out, and he and his entire family are put to death, executed, capital punishment for their treacherous sin. This demonstrates that when sin enters the the people of God, it can affect everybody. Turn with me quickly, if you don't mind, to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. First Corinthians 5, perhaps if you're familiar with this passage, you know that there was a man in this church that was having illicit relationships with his stepmother. Paul goes after this man and the church for not dealing with him because it was a heinous sin. Even, even among the pagans in Corinth, this was a heinous sin. So Paul tells them how to deal with this. And then he says, In verse 6, your boasting is not good. Perhaps they they thought they were being really merciful and were impressed with themselves. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Like Achan, back in the congregation of Israel. Cleanse out the old leaven, 1 Corinthians 5-7. That you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Why do I bring this up? Because in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, John says if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. In other words, as we worship God, we can relate to each other well. But when we don't, we, we hurt the whole. So you might think that your sin, perhaps your private sin, won't affect anybody else. The Scriptures teach us differently. And in His mercy, He will expose that sin, not just for your own good, but for the good of the whole. That we might be a a holy covenant people of God and together might display His glory to the world around us. This means that the church is a means of grace to help you turn from sin, that which would dishonor God and destroy you. The church is a means of grace to help you turn from sin and turn to God. Fellowship with God requires knowing and esteeming Him rightly, verse 5. Obeying His commands and reflecting His character, verses 6-7. through And lastly for today, repenting in a posture of humility and hope. 
John says in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, His Word is not in us. These opponents in and around these churches to which John wrote, they were rewriting the rules of doctrine and rewriting the rules of morality. John says, we don't get to do that. God's in charge. He's our authority. And the truth of the matter is, even if we have come to the light, we still sin. This reminds us of Numbers 14. The Lord is slow to anger, Moses wrote, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. God delights in forgiving us. Turn with me if you don't mind to Romans chapter 3. In Romans chapter 3, we learn about how God both maintains His righteousness and declares us righteous. Paul says in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-bearer by His blood. To be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness, because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time, so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God delights in dispensing righteousness, but He doesn't violate His own righteousness because He did judge sin. He judged it by sacrificing His own sin. Jesus bore God's wrath so that God could both be a forgiver and maintain His righteous standards. If you've ever read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this is what C.S. Lewis is trying to communicate when Aslan dies for Edmund. Aslan laid his life down for Edmund the traitor, and then he came back to life, picturing for us the death and resurrection of Jesus. When Edmund's sisters find that Aslan has come back to life, they look at him in wonder, and he says that though the witch who had slain him knew the deep magic, there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little further back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That's why Jesus came to die for us and be raised victorious over sin and death and offer us forgiveness. We won't take time to turn here today. You can look at this on your own. But in John chapter 13, Jesus makes it clear to His disciples that those He has cleansed, new birth, conversion, justification, initial salvation, still need daily cleansing. Peter doesn't want Jesus to wash his feet. And Jesus says, if I don't wash you, you don't have any part with me. So what does Peter say? Well, wash my head and every part of me. And Jesus says to Peter, I've already washed you, but you need daily cleansing. A reminder that we've been made clean. We've been atoned for by the blood of Jesus, but need daily cleansing as we fellowship with Him. Richard Sibbs, who was a Puritan, wrote a book called The Bruised Reed. And he says this, 
in his book. If we have this for a foundation truth, if there is more mercy in Christ than sin in us, there can be no danger in thorough dealing. The Puritans were hard to understand. Let me tell you what he means. If Christ delights in giving us mercy, we can pursue repentance. And my friends, this is what John is telling us in 1 John chapter 1. God is just when He forgives us because He's already punished sin. And then He delights in dispensing His mercy. So how should we live before Him? Dealing with our sin. Not, not running from it, but coming to Him in expectation that He will forgive us. Fellowship with God requires that we repent in a posture of humility and hope that we will constantly be forgiven every time. The great reformer Martin Luther was a monk. And he was haunted by the phrase in the Bible, the righteousness of God. He knew that he was not righteous and he felt like God constantly wanted to judge him. And he grew to hate God. He would go to his little room in his monastery, which was more like a jail cell, and he would whip himself. And he would sleep through winter nights with no blanket. And he would go see his priest to whom he would confess over and over and over again. In fact, his priest would say to him, what priest says this? His priest would say to him, you're too hard on yourself, Martin. Eventually, though, he began to understand that the righteousness of God, which stood over him, could also be credited to him, imputed to him, if he would just trust Jesus. He had nothing to offer, but Jesus accomplished everything for him. Whereas before Luther had pursued a life of penance, he eventually learned to lead a life of repentance. Penance is buying God off with your efforts. You don't have to do that. If you've trusted Christ, He's already paid for everything. You don't have to buy God off. But because we sin, we honestly and humbly come to Him expecting that He will delight in dispensing mercy once again. And He always does. So my friends, let us walk in the light. Let us know and esteem our God rightly. May we obey His commands and reflect His character to each other and the world around us. And may we repent with humility and hope. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, now take these words, these eternal words of truth and hope and plant them deep in our minds and hearts and accomplish that in us which we need individually and corporately for the glory of Jesus, for our mutual joy, and the eternal good of this community. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.